So as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, we're starting a series today about hope. And I want to start off by talking about, uh, well, I'm a movie fan. I don't know if y'all enjoy movies. One of my favorite websites is imdb.com, which is the Internet Movie Database. On that website, you can find virtually any movie that's ever been made, no matter how obscure. And it'll tell you everything you need to know about that movie, who wrote it, who directed it, who starred in it, how much money it made, all kinds of trivia, interesting facts about the movie. Many has been the night when I have sat with my family watching a movie together, and I've, I've sat and used my smartphone to read to them these interesting facts that enhance their viewing experience. And they usually, they usually respond with some appreciative and affectionate comment like, hey, Dad, why don't you put your smartphone up and just watch the dang movie with us? Um, which I know actually means, yes, Father, please tell us more. So I continue. But on IMDb, another feature of the website is you can actually rate the movie. If you're a registered user, you can rate any movie on a scale of 1 to 10. And so that gives us this, this constantly updating list of the most popular movies of all time, not based on the reviews of critics, but on real people like you and me and hundreds of thousands of users. And so uh, there's this one movie that has been ranked as the number one movie on IMDb for years and years now. It's 9.4 out of 10. And I want to see, if you, if you didn't already talk to someone from the first service, turn to your neighbor and tell them what you think that movie is, that's the number one movie of all time, according to those users. Okay, you've had enough time. So... It's not Star Wars, it's not The Godfather, it's not Citizen Kane, it's not Casablanca, it's not Gone with the Wind, it's not The Wizard of Oz, it's The Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption, 9.4 out of 10 on IMDb, it's been that way for years, as long as I've been on the site. And the interesting thing is, this is a movie that when it came out in 1994, which I know seems like yesterday to me, was actually over 20 years ago, it actually didn't make a big impression. It, was, it, it did poorly at the box office. It's not a movie that you would think would be loved. It's a, a movie about a prison in Maine in the 1940s. It's kind of downbeat. It's pretty brutal. i got to be honest, I've only seen the version they run on AMC about every two weeks, so I don't know what the full version is, but I'm told it's pretty rough. You wouldn't think a movie like that would become beloved. But I've read a new, numerous articles about this, speculating why this movie is so popular, and the, the general consensus is, it's because it's a movie about hope. And hope is what the whole world is looking for and can't seem to find. See, in the movie, there are two main characters. And by the way, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you the whole thing today. So in the movie, there's these two main characters. Red is the narrator, played, of course, by Morgan Freeman. And Andy Dufresne is this new prisoner who comes to the prison. Red's been there since he was a, a young man in his early 20s. Now he's well past middle age. And they're talking about hope, and, and Red believes that hope is a, is a luxury you can't afford in prison, that, that you just, you'll go insane if you, if you have hope in anything. But Andy says, no, hope is, hope is the one thing that a world like this can't take away from you. Hope is what keeps you alive. And the great quote, he says, is, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. A lot of people in the world today are like Red, aren't they? They want to hope, but they, they're afraid. 
They've been burned too many times. They put their hope in a, a relationship and it fell apart. They put their hope in a career and it, and it failed. They put their hope in an empire and it collapsed. They put their hope in a political candidate and he turned out to be the worst. It, they put their hope in something and it failed. And so they've said, I'm not going to hope in anything ever again. So many people like that. Where can hope be found? We have hope. We have a story of hope, and that's what we're going to read today. We're going to take a look at where our hope comes from. Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what the future holds for people who follow Christ, what heaven will be like, what we have to look forward to. But today, we're going to focus on the basis of our hope, the, the real roots of our story. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. That's the subject of this series. And for my money, it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. In fact, if you were, if you were transported to another country where Scripture was illegal, and you could only smuggle in one chapter of the Bible, I would recommend this one because it has everything you need lead someone to salvation, everything you need to sustain yourself. It's the basics. Paul calls it the gospel in verse 1, the gospel I preach to you. That, that's a word we use a lot, but does anybody know what it means? It means good news. Very good. Yeah, it means good news. The Greek word euangelion is the word we translate gospel. It means good news. And the interesting thing is my, I have a colleague, my, my friend who is one of my fellow pastors at my former church, Every year, he runs a day camp uh, for elementary age kids, two or three hundred kids every day during the summer at, at, at the church, which sounds like a nightmare to me. But he runs this camp, and, and he, every summer he's, he brings in high school age and college age young men and women to be the counselors of that day camp. And he interviews them. He wants to know, do you really know Christ? What is your spiritual foundation? And every year he would sit down with me when I was pastor there, and he'd say, okay, do you want to hear the answers I got this year? Because I'll ask him, are you a Christian? Well, what does that mean? Are you saved? Do you know you're going to heaven? Well, why? What is the gospel? And these are church kids. These are kids who grew up in that church or other churches in that area, and their answers were always wrong. I mean, he was, it was rare that he would get a person who would say the, the real gospel. Usually they'd say things like, well, yeah, I, I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven because I go to church on Sundays, because I believe in God, because I believe in the Bible, because I try to follow the commands that are in the Scriptures, because I try to be a good person. Folks, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Uh, the, the word gospel, euangelion, it, it's, a, it's a very profound word. Imagine you lived in a first century Greek city 
and you found out that a foreign army, a barbarian horde was descending upon your city and within a few days they would invade and all of you would be killed and those that survived would be carried off into slavery. And, and imagine that a, an army of men from your city went out to meet them on the field of battle and you're there waiting, just waiting to hear what happened. And finally, a, a runner comes into the city all out of breath and and torn up, and he gathers the people, and, and, and imagine the, the bated breath that you stand there listening, waiting to hear the report. And imagine this, this herald says, I have euangelion, I have good news. The foreign army has been defeated. They've gone home. We're saved. That's the kind of word we're talking about. This isn't the kind of word where you say, hey, I got a good deal on a used car. Good news. No, this is, this is life-saving news. Imagine, imagine a woman who has, is at the end of her rope. She's just had an abortion. She got pregnant out of wedlock and her boyfriend wasn't going to be there for her. She didn't know what else to do. It's ironic we talk about pro-choice because so many of those women don't feel like they have a choice. And there she is feeling all this guilt and shame and not knowing where to turn. She can't take back what she did and she doesn't know what to do. Imagine a man whose wife and kids have moved away and they don't have any contact with him anymore. And he knows that it's at least in part his fault. He knows the many ways he drove them away. But now he's all alone. He doesn't know what to do. Imagine a woman who's single and she's gotten to an age where she's just convinced, I, I want to get married, but I don't think anyone will have me now. And I'm all alone in the world. And, and what's my life going to be? Imagine a man who spent his whole life building a financial empire thinking someday I'll quit, I'll retire, and I'll just enjoy the fruits of my labors. But now, now due to some bad investments, all that money's gone and, and he's, he's gotten to the age where no one's going to hire him anymore. And he spent his life thinking his life was about one thing and now it's all gone. What is he, what is he supposed to do at this point? Imagine those four people and you go to one of those four and you say, hey, I got good news. If you go to church and you try really hard to obey the commandments, someday maybe you'll go to heaven. That's not good news. They won't want to hear that. That won't, that won't be good news to them at all. So what is the good news? Let's talk about it. Let's, let's look again at the Scripture. We won't be able to go through this in detail. There's so much here. We could literally be here an entire year. I promise I won't do that to you. But I do want to show you Three things. We're in a Baptist church. There's going to be three points. You know that. So three things that comprise the good news. First of all, look at that word in verse 3, the word Christ. Christ. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. By the way, let me backtrack a little bit. As of first importance. This is the most important thing, he says. Go back even further. He says, by this gospel you're saved, otherwise you've believed in vain. Did he really say there's only one path to heaven? Yeah, and he's not the only one. It's all through the Scriptures. This is it. That word Christ, back to verse 3, the word Christ is, we think of it as sort of a name. We think of Jesus Christ, like Jesus was the firstborn son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ of Nazareth, right? But Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah. See, the, the Jews believed ever since they were created, ever since the Jewish race came to be in the, in the form of Abraham and his children, they knew that God would send them a, an anointed one, a deliverer, a great hero who would come and would stand up for God's people and would deliver them from all, all that was against them. And in their minds, they pictured this Davidic hero, this second David who would come down and fight their battles and reign on their throne and would just make everything the way it ought to be. 
And here comes Jesus. Paul is saying here, Jesus is that Christ. He's that promised one. And Jesus was a different kind of Christ than the people expected. John 14, 9, he was talking to his disciple Philip, and Philip said, hey, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And you know what Jesus said? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have, you're looking at him. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. John chose to start his gospel, the fourth gospel, with these words. He, he called Jesus, first of all, the Word, the Word of God, without whom nothing would be. The Word of God spoke everything into existence. And then here's that crucial verse. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. God put on human skin and came and lived with us. So the first point of the gospel, the first aspect of the good news is that God comes to us. And that differs from every other human religion that's ever been invented. You, you name it. If, if, if a religion believes in a personal God, and even a lot of, uh, a lot of the ways Christianity is often presented, it goes something like this. Well, here's the plan. Here's the path. You walk this path. You do these things. And someday, maybe you'll get to God. If you're a really good person, you try really hard, you discipline yourself, you sacrifice, someday maybe you'll climb that mountain, you'll get to the top, and there you'll stand in God's presence, and he'll say, congratulations, you're one of the few and the proud. That's religion, right? But the gospel's different. The gospel says, no, God comes to you. God comes to you. I heard about a man in another church who passed away after a long, full life, married to the same woman for years and years, very vibrant, fruitful marriage. And at his funeral, his pastor told the story of how this couple had met. They had actually met on a blind date, believe it or not. And this young woman, here she is in her early 20s, and, and her friends said, hey, we're setting you up with this guy. He's going to come by your house tonight. Don't worry. He's really handsome. He's tall, athletic. He's in great shape. You're going to love him. So the doorbell rings that night. She opens the door, and there stands this really overweight guy. And she's really surprised to see this. He's not at all what she thought. And after a few seconds, this, this handsome guy jumps out from behind the fat guy and says, hey, it's me. It's time for our date. Let's go. So she's a little puzzled, but she's a polite young woman, so she goes with him. They have a really good time. Halfway through the night, things are going well, and she feels free to just ask him. So what was that all about with the other guy? Why was he there? And the guy says, well... I'd never really seen you before, and so I didn't know what you looked like. So here's the plan. I was going to get a look at you from behind my friend, and if I didn't like the way you looked, I was just going to walk away, and he was going to be your date. But since, you know, you looked all right, he just went home, and everything went, you know, just like we wanted it to. And some of you ladies right here are saying, isn't that just like a man? And yes, it is. We are pigs. I'm sorry. But here's the point. There is a man who's not like that at all. There is a man who doesn't care what you look like, doesn't care how much money you have, doesn't care what kind of stuff is in your past, doesn't care what kind of stuff you might be capable of in the future. All he is about is being there for you. And he just says, it's me. I came for you. I came for you, not the person you should have been, not the person I wish you were. I came for you. You are mine. If you'll have me, I'll be yours, and you can be mine. That's good news, no matter who you are. Secondly, it's good news 
that Jesus died for our sins. See, that verse 3 goes on and says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, why does it say that, according to the Scriptures? If you go back and read the Old Testament, you'll see signs all through it, starting in Genesis 3, all the way through to Malachi. There are signs that someday the Son of God is going to give His life. And these are things that the disciples and nobody else in that era besides Jesus saw until after Jesus was gone. And they went back and they read it, and it's like, oh, yeah, why didn't we see it before? All these signs, all these prophecies, and two of the, two of the biggest ones that God wrote down in His Word, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. If you go home and read that today, you'll see Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, two chapters that are like blow-by-blow -blow descriptions of the crucifixion even though they were written hundreds of years before crucifixion had been invented. Now, why did God do this? Why did God put all this foreshadowing in His Word that, that someday His Son would die? Because He wanted us to know it was part of the plan. He wanted us to know that it was on purpose. See, a lot of people look at the story of Jesus, and even most non-Christians I know have a deep admiration for Jesus. But they see Him as this revolutionary who was gobbled up by this insatiable machine that was the Roman Empire or this gentle and kind teacher who was, who was betrayed and, and executed by tyrants. And so they see Jesus' death as this miscarriage of justice. And that's not true at all. The cross was a place of victory. Good Friday was truly good. Jesus chose to die. He wasn't a victim. He went there on purpose. He chose to pay the price for our sins, and so His death for us was victory. He went to the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before Him, and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. I think about, about Jesus and his, his, uh, Him hanging on that cross and His worst enemies, the ones who had conspired to kill Him, standing there at his feet and mocking him, thinking they'd won a great victory. And one of the things they said was, he saved others. He can't save himself. And for once, you know what? They were actually right. If he would have saved himself, he wouldn't have saved others. He chose to do that. That's atonement. And when I think about atonement, I think about myself back in the seventh grade. Now, growing up, I was a decent student. I was kind of lazy and a little daydreamy, but that's the way a lot of little boys are. But when I was in seventh grade, an early teenager, it's like something went pop inside my brain, and I just, I just quit working. I just quit paying attention in class, didn't even try, didn't even work on homework, didn't even turn in assignments. My son starts seventh grade tomorrow. Don't go there, okay? Just... And it was miserable. I mean, zeros were piling up. Teachers were calling my mom saying, we don't know. We think he's capable of the work. We don't know what's going on. And then, then came the day when I, took, I, I got that report card and that math grade was the worst grade I ever made. I mean, it was, it was one of those fatal grades. And I had to go home and get that signed by my parents. But first, I had a basketball game. I was on the seventh grade basketball team, and, and the game was out of town. And so as soon as school was over, we got on the bus, and we drove to the game. And my dad met us there. He went straight from work to the game. And after the game was over, I rode home with dad instead of riding home with my teammates. So that was a long car ride, knowing that I had that scarlet letter in my book bag. And it wasn't a letter A, I'll tell you that. And, and knowing what was going to happen when I got home. And I wasn't a really good basketball player. In fact, that was the last year I played organized ball. 
And, but, but I had a good night that night, and so Dad was really excited. He got home, and he was going on and on. My dad does not gush, but he was going on and on about, to my mom about how well that I had played, and I was sitting there thinking, I can't do it. I can't break their heart right now. They're so proud of me right now. I can't, I just can't do it. And, and so I, I didn't tell them about the report card. And I went back to school the next day and I lied to my teachers and I said, oh yeah, I just forgot it at home. I'll, I'll get it tomorrow. Well, that just meant 24 more hours of misery waiting to see my parents again. Now imagine, by the way, I did survive. Um, it, it was close, but I, I did live through that when I showed them that report card. But Imagine that you went up to little miserable me in seventh grade during that horrible 24 hours. And imagine you're, you're the kid in class that turned in all the assignments and paid attention to every lecture and, and scored 100 on every test. And you come to me and you say, hey, you want to trade report cards? I mean, we can, we can just swap. I'll put my name on yours. You put your name on mine. And sure, I'll go home and I'll get in big trouble, but your parents will be thrilled. You'll probably, you'll probably get taken to Dairy Queen or something. So you want to trade? Would that be fair? No, not in a million years. Would I take that deal? You bet I would. Seventh grade me would have been all over that. Middle-aged me would be all over that. And you would too. And that's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus looked at us and said, man, your report card, you have failed. Absolutely. Which one of us? Every one of us. You, me, the Pope, Billy Graham, everybody. F minus minus. And Jesus was the one person who'd made an A plus, who'd never, who'd never missed a question. And he said, let's trade report cards. I'll take the punishment. You get the victory. Is that good news? Well, seventh grade me would have thought so. But that's not all. Not only does God come for us, not only did Jesus die for us, the good news says that Jesus rose again. That's the best part. That's, that's, the, that's the triumph of all triumphs. It says after he died, verse 4 says, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on to talk about all the people that the risen Christ appeared to. And starting in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about how we know for sure Jesus really did rise again, how we know that that is the most historically verifiable uh, event in the history of humanity. I mean, we can be so sure of that. We can be more sure of that than anything. But we'll talk about that later. For now, I just want to talk about why that's important. Because Jesus rose on the third day, not just to say to his enemies, see, you can't kill me after all. And not just to look at you and me and say, hey, guess what? Heaven's real, and you can go there when you die. That's a good, good thing, but that's not what happened on Easter. What happened at Easter was Jesus unleashed a new kind of hope into the world, the kind of ho hope the world had never seen before, and it changed everything. Because suddenly people who believed in Jesus realized this world is not all there is. Christ has conquered death. Uh, death is not the end. It's just the beginning. And so because this world is not all there is, we can feel free to give our lives away freely and joyfully. And there's no sacrifice that's too much because what we give away in this life, we get back a hundredfold in the next. And it, if you want to see an illustration of what hope does to people, go home tonight and read the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's not that hard. I mean, you can do it in, in a single sitting. They were both written by Luke, 
He, they were meant to be volume one and volume two of one book. You read the, the Gospel of Luke from start to finish, and it ends with the resurrection. At that point, if you quit and you pretend it's the first time you've ever heard the story, you would think to yourself, man, those disciples, Jesus is great. Those disciples were losers. They never got anything right. They had no faith. They had no courage. They abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. They're going to be forgotten. And then you read Acts, and you see these guys who were so lost at the, in the first half of the story, now they're heroic in the second half. And this is why today, to this day, we name houses and, and, and hospitals and schools and, and cities and our sons after these 12 men. These men who, as it says in the book of Acts, during their own lifetime, they were called these men who have turned the world upside down. It happened because of hope and the Holy Spirit, because hope had entered in. And they were like, hey, this life is for giving away. This life is for selling out completely so that I can, I can enjoy eternity because this world isn't all there is. I don't have to be selfish. I don't have to be about me. I can be about others. I can be about serving Him. Think about that phrase, they've turned the world upside down. Do you, do you think maybe this world that we live in today could stand to be turned upside down? Yeah. You think maybe there's a little sorrow that should be turned into joy or some evil that should be turned into justice, some despair that can be flipped over into hope? That can happen because Christ rose again. That can happen because this world isn't all there is. I started by talking about the Shawshank Redemption and John Ortberg's outstanding book, Who Is This Man? He talks about how that movie in many ways, parallels the story of Jesus. Interesting when you think about it. Andy Dufresne, the main character, is physically unimpressive. He's an innocent man who's unjustly accused. He's brutalized. He's treated horribly. And yet he responds with courage and compassion. He's a banker. He knows his financial stuff, so he helps out his own prison guards. He does their taxes for them. He does this out of the kindness of his heart. The, the warden of the prison is a hypocritical Pharisee who quotes Scripture and acts pious, but on the other hand, he accepts bribes and he treats his prisoners like slaves. And Andy exposes his, his hypocrisy and, and brings him to justice. He escapes prison by crawling through a, a 500-mile tube of sewage and lands in a river and gets out clean. He... he went into the deepest, darkest, nastiest part of humanity and emerged pure and free on the other side. And after he's escaped, his friend Red, who's left behind, this man who didn't believe in hope, is left behind, and eventually he's paroled. And at first doesn't know what to do with himself. He's been in jail since he was a young man. Now he's an old man. He doesn't know what to do. He, he contemplates committing a crime so he'll be sent back to prison where things make sense. He, he contemplates suicide. And then he thinks back to an offer that Andy made to him back when they were in jail together. He says, Red, if you ever get out of this place, there's, there's somewhere I want you to go. I've got something for you there. And he goes to that place. He decides to just see what will happen. He digs up a box just where Andy said it would be, and he opens it up, and inside is money that, that Andy saved up through all of his years of suffering and a note that tells him where to go. And you remember right there at the end of the movie, Red gets on a bus, and as he's traveling, here's this guy, again, who didn't believe in hope, who didn't think hope was something we should hold on to, 
And he says, he says, I'm so excited. By the way, try to hear this in Morgan Freeman's voice. I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. And then, of course, the last shot of the movie, you see him walking onto this white sand beach by the beautiful ocean, and there's Andy dressed in white. It's just this fantastic ending, best ending I can think of. Here's the thing. This is not a Christian movie by any means. It's rated R for a reason. I'm not recommending you go out and rent it. Stephen King wrote the novel upon which it's based. I've read the novel. It's not a Christian book. Stephen King is not a believer in Christ. The, the filmmaker, Frank Darabont, as far as I know, is not a believer either. I'm not saying any of this was on purpose. I'm saying that two talented people got together and made the most beloved movie of all time about hope, and it couldn't help but echo the gospel because the story of Jesus is the story of hope. And anytime you see anything hopeful, you hear echoes of the best story of all. And as great as that movie is and as great as that book is, we've got a better story because we've got a story that's true. If all you have is the Shawshank Redemption, it might make you feel good for a while. And then you go back to the real world. We've got reality. We've got the truth that sets people free. We've got the truth that literally turns the world upside down and changes everything. And my question to you as we close is, when's the last time you shared that with someone who needed to hear it?